This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. In this special episode, Mike Bernard, Chief Strategist of TFIE Strategy Incorporated and regular Clean Technica contributor, takes over as host of Clean Tech Talk. His guest is Mark Z. Jacobson, who is, among many titles and accolades, a professor at Stanford University and co-founder of the Solutions Project. Um, so the uh, transmission congestion piece specifically, um, you know, they, they right now we're, we're in this transformation in um, developing in developed countries. Um, including China, which I'll, I'll classify in that, in that category. I don't think we can call it a developing country anymore, where we have continent-scale grids. We have uh, energy flows which cross all the energy district regions to greater or lesser extents. So like in United States, Texas remains a certain amount of isolation, but it's building more interconnects with the rest of the United States. Um, we're seeing ancillary energy markets emerging. Um, and we're seeing transmission with HVDC emerging, but you chose um, fairly conservative transmission statements for the 143 country piece, <clears throat> which is something I, I want to keep coming back to. But talk about the choices you made for some of those things, especially the small isolated countries like Israel and Mauritius and stuff like that. Well, so yeah, we broke up these 143 countries into 24 world regions, but some of these regions, in fact, most, almost half of them, I think around 12, are actually very small countries or small to medium. Uh, like Mauritius is an island, Iceland is an island, New Zealand is an island. Um, you know, one of the bigger ones is Japan, which is also a set of islands. Um, South Korea was on its own. Taiwan was on its own. And... We had in Jamaica and uh, also Haiti, Dominican Republic, Cuba. So we had a bunch of small islands that involved in when we did this modeling for matching power demand with supply, we basically assumed in perfect transmission in each region. And in reality, there is a grid that, you know, electricity goes through individual wires, but it's, there is no model available in the world uh, that actually can model continuously over time at a 30-second resolution for many years every single transmission line. And there's no model that even tries. There's some models that you know, model a few different transmission lines, a few major ones, and they have a much coarser time resolution, anywhere from uh, many minutes to hour or hour or more. And 
but even those they're usually um sacrificing other things because they don't you can't include all the storage options and all the uh generation options and hydrogen production and use and things like that so we we had a very high resolution in pretty much everything except our transmission which is perfect um, assuming perfect transmission uh, however as i mentioned we have these 12 regions that are basically islands where okay those are reasonably we can assume reasonably without much risk of you know having perfect transmission because there's such transmission distances are so small and we do account even though we have perfect assuming perfect transmission we do account for losses along transmission lines we do account for the cost of transmission so it's just that we're not modeling individual lines uh, but we found that we can keep the grid stable in these small regions every one of them at low cost as well as the large ones and what most people are not you know, miss those forests from the trees is that okay so even if in the large regions like say china or the united states or canada where it's not a great assumption to assume perfect transmission because you know even though everything is, in, is interconnected in reality i mean the whole united states is in fact interconnected it's just that it's not perfectly interconnected in the sense that you don't have all the size you know, size of the transmission lines that you need but we do account for the cost of additional ones that we would need. Uh, the thing is that the difference in cost to make it perfect is so much smaller than the cost savings of going to renewable. Remember, we're, we're reducing power demand almost 60%. <laughs> and so, and just by electrifying everything and providing that electricity with clean renewable energy, and we're reducing social costs 90%. So, I mean, it would have to be such an enormous cost of making the transmission line perfect for us to to be wrong in our conclusions. Uh, it would just be astronomical. Well, let's take some of those small ones. Like some of those small countries, you uh, indicated just on direct costs, it was still cheaper, um, never mind social costs, to run a, a, um, a, a very local grid like Israel, which is politically isolated as South Korea is, you know, not, not an, an island, but a political island. And, you know, you found a significant reduction in the annual cost of energy simply because of that massive reduction in the energy use. Yeah, it is. And also keep in mind, in those, a lot of those countries, it's the fossil fuel costs are very high. I mean, take, because I know I'm familiar with this, like take Hawaii. We didn't model Hawaii specifically in this case. But um, in Hawaii, the, the cost of uh, electricity is on the order of 35 cents a kilowatt hour. And the US average is like 14 cents because it takes, it's so expensive to actually transport fuel by ship to Hawaii. And then plus there's other costs associated with it. So it's, and this is most of the islands in the Caribbean are also around 33, 35 cents a kilowatt hour. And also if you go to, um, uh, American Samoa, there's some islands there for it's about 50 cents a kilowatt hour. So, you know, a lot of these remote places or an island places, the energy is already extremely expensive. And we're not, you know, it could, when you go to wind, water, solar in these places, you know, we're talking anywhere from like nine to 14 cents a kilowatt hour at the most. And so that you're dropping per kilowatt hour, you're dropping tremendously. And you're reducing energy consumption by on the order of fifty to fifty-five to sixty percent. 
And, and we're increasing reliability as well. I mean, some statistics that I like to pull out, I mean, just talking about the cost of electricity, you know, a lot of people who are pro-nuclear and anti-renewables point to Germany's high uh, cost rates for electricity. But, you know, um, Craig, Craig Morris um, has done been following and analyzing the energy vinda for 20 years, and he's very clear, and I've, I've assessed this as well, that the high cost of electricity is due to policy to drive efficiency. Um, even the World Nuclear Association agrees that the wholesale rates of electricity in Germany, which sees over 40% wind, water, and solar annually now, uh, are among the lowest in Europe. And Germany also has one of the most reliable grids in the world at 15, cent, 15 minutes of interruption on average annually per consumer. Denmark, just north of it, is down in the same range. Whereas the United States is over two hours per consumer of um, interruptions per year. Probably going to be higher this year because of, or for last year, because of the California PPGA um, challenges. You know. The, and then finally, the, the other one I'd like to point to is Texas. Um, a decade ago, Texas had 6% wind and no solar to speak of. Now they have 20, 21% wind and solar. And a decade ago, they had among the lowest electricity rates in the United States, but they also had the worst grid reliability in the United States. They were 50th among the states. Now they're 34th or 33rd. As their penetration of renewables has increased, their grid reliability has increased almost exactly the same proportion. It's an interesting observation as we look at empirical evidence for grid reliability related to wind, water, and solar around the world. Yeah, that's true. The um, grid, it can be more reliable and it should be more reliable with a completely renewable energy system. I mean, keep in mind that coal plants are down uh, 12% of the year, 6% unforced outages and 6% forced outages. So they're not, it's not like they're, even though they're baseload, they're flat when they're on, that they're down. And when they're down, you know, the entire grid has to be replaced with something else or their entire source of energy has to be replaced with something else. So there is this, they're not you know, reliable. Um, like a wind turbine is only down from maintenance, like one or 2% of the year. I mean, even though the wind itself is intermittent, uh, but it's actually maintenance time is much less than it's a coal plant. I should point out with Germany, I mean, when most people are not, when they look at the cost of energy, they're looking at the cost per unit energy, but, and a lot of people who don't like renewables will point to, you know, the higher electricity rates in Germany, but they always ignore the fact that hundreds of thousands of people pay no electricity bills because they're, they have solar and they're getting feed in tariffs. And so when you, you really have to average out the, you know, the cost to really look at the real costs to the, all the consumers, you have to average the fact that a lot of people are not paying any electricity bill and actually getting paid for their electricity. Plus, that doesn't account for all the job creation and the revenue stream from the job. So looking at one metric is also not uh, useful when you're, you have to kind of look at all these metrics together, the overall cost. And that's something that your study does, as I was saying. It's like you cover um, security, you cover um, cost, you cover CO2, you cover the uh, social cost, which is, a, you know, a key thing that seems to be lacking. There's a lot of discussion, and even I've, you and I have gone back and forth on something. I mean, just the, to pull out one of the places where we've had a mild disagreement was the likely percentage of contribution of residential rooftop solar in future grids. Uh, you and your team model 14.85%, I think it is, 
uh, for many regions around the world. Um, you know, I suggest it's probably closer to 5% in, but I think that's, you've got a, a maximum potential and I'm looking at a more realistic, likely number. Um, and so, I, and I'm just displacing the rooftop residential with utility scale. And the metric we pull out there um, is, you know, that I pulled out from McKinsey and other studies was um, the high, much higher cost of rooftop solar versus utility solar on the specific metric of cost per ton of CO2 avoided. Um, but, you know, um, that's a bit of a mess of discussion points. So what do you want to pull out of that and, and comment on? Well, I think there, like we, okay, we came up with one scenario and there are certainly multiple scenarios, including your scenario as well, is a, is just as valid or it could be more valid. Um, we looked at, and it, it's true that because well, utility sales scale solar is cheaper right now and probably will be for a while um, than individual residential solar. Now, when you have communities going in together, then like let's say you have five houses going in together to buy solar, though the cost of your rooftop solar drops significantly, uh, like by by half. If you go to commercial scale solar, where it's getting really close to utility scale solar. It's not so commercial rooftop solar is still more expensive than utility, but it's it's actually a lot closer even than you know multi-residential solar. So they're different grades. And I would I would agree with you the you know the if you if it's from a societal point of view of the government making decisions, uh, you know, they would obviously go for the cheapest and the best bang for the buck. Um, but a lot of individuals do want to have solar on their roofs and they have a means to do it. I mean, if they can buy an SUV, they can, they can probably buy solar on their roof. And so there will be a lot of people who just do it, even though it's not, you know, maybe they, if they invested that money in a, in a solar farm, they could do that, but it doesn't give them that satisfaction. So there will be a lot of people, um, especially if there are incentives given, uh, who will put solar on their roof. And, and there are countries too, and we're also looking at it from you're, you're in Canada and a lot, and I'm in the U.S. a lot. And we see we're big, these are big countries, but there are a lot of small countries that just don't have a lot of land. Yes. And so those for sure, they're going to benefit from rooftop solar. Of course, now solar can be put off offshore on water, so that's a big. Um, that would be really, it's going to be really interesting to see. I, I mean, I think some of these island countries like Singapore, for example, actually have plans to put floating offshore solar, yeah. which is very feasible even in the ocean because you can, you know, build basically a breakwater. Yeah, no, I've, I've been looking at floating solar. I've been going deep. I've been talking to uh, Phil Connors out of um, Australia who had uh, was working with Tata Hydro Facilities in India to put floating solar up. I've been talking to the head of the World Floating Solar Association about um, opportunities there, and I've been talking to Pump Storage Hydro and assessing floating solar on Pump Storage Hydro. So I'm much more in-depth there than I used to be. Um, I'll be publishing an article soon on some major failures of floating hydro. Um, our floating solar because there's this really interesting challenge from an engineering perspective of wind load on the um, uh, diagonally or oriented um, uh, or oriented solar panels uh, sitting on rafts on the water um, and they've actually had major um, 
they've had mil, you know multi-million dollar disasters where the rafts break loose slow downwind like ice flows and there's i've got video of one even catching on fire it's not a hundred percent solved space and it's it's not as much of a slam dunk as we might think mm. um the singapore stuff having lived in singapore i recently assessed that it's a they've got a reservoir facility where they're testing floating solar but they haven't got significant plans yet for um, in the very calm waters offshore to put solar in, in, in part because I, I remember counting from my condo, um, it was 113 ships waiting to load and unload moored off the, off the shores of Singapore. Um, it's, a said, huge, it's a huge port. I said I wasn't going to be commenting here, but there's a stunning story that we, we briefly mentioned recently, which South Korea is planning a 2.7 gigawatt floating solar uh, plant in combination with a 300 megawatt offshore wind plant behind the, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, the Saimangiam Dyke. Uh, and the current floating solar capacity globally is 1.3 gigawatts. So yeah. this is more than double the current global capacity. So it's a pretty, pretty huge step forward if that comes about. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about floating solar is it has multiple value propositions. One of the value propositions for reservoirs in hot, dry places, it reduces evaporation load, potentially by 50% per the numbers that I got out of Phil Connors out of um, Australia. And, you know, that, given that, you know, you lose five to eight feet in Lake Mead every year, um, of water that starts to be very interesting in certain classes of things, but you know, well, the lake along canals, there are a lot of canals yep. that can be covered, not necessarily floating, but just lying on top of the canal. Um, okay. Irrigation canals over top. The other side that's really interesting about floating solar is you actually get increased efficiency of the floor, solar panels in hot climates. Right. Um, because they work better when they're cool, you get evaporative cooling from the water from underneath. It's reduced evaporation, but still it's evaporative cooling. And it's a cool heat sink as opposed to warming ground. Um, and so the solar panels efficiency for floating solar is 10% higher. Um, so there's multiple value propositions, but it's not a solved it's not a hundred percent solved problem from an engineering perspective yet. Yeah. So. The good news is it looks like, you know, there's a lot of trial and error going on right now, but it sounds like even the wind stress is something that's resolvable uh, by some good engineering. Yeah. Well, there's certainly the person that I'm talking to, which I haven't seen the numbers from him yet. He's saying he's just going with flat, laying them flat. He's not even putting them up. He's not making them into sales. That reduces the efficiency of angle of incidence on the panels. And I haven't seen the statistics on that yet. So, but yeah, lots of fascinating stuff. There's to, to the point, the bigger point that we're making, um, your study does um, makes a set of choices in my observation, you almost invariably choose the more expensive choice and the more constrained choice. Um, and yet still, it's massively cheaper than a wind, water, and solar world per your analysis than in our current world. Yeah, we tried to, I mean, we tried to be conservative as much as possible because, as you say, you know, if you can show that you can solve the problem under conservative assumptions, then it's even easier if your assumptions are wrong because they're too conservative. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, we've we've always striven for that. Um, you know, but there are always people who are criticized no matter what. And that's what we found in 2015. That uh, you know, there's and there's reasonable comments. I, I'm not 
trying to say there's not uh, reasonable commentary on some of the assumptions that are, are made. But uh, generally, I found that you know it's one thing to make a criticism, and you know, and, uh, you know, constructive criticism is another thing to make a criticism with the intent to destroy the credibility. And that's unfortunately you get these people who are, who try to do that, and so I find it's. You know, we try to be conservative as much as possible, and we continue to do that. And I think that help does help somewhat. Um, well, you've also addressed some of the some of the some of the reasonable um, you know, concerns about the 2015 study are certainly addressed in this one. Um, you know, but you know, let's, let's take one of the examples because I mean, I asked you specifically about this one when I was digging through it back in December, which is the pump storage. Um, you know, use uh, I I've been talking to global pumped storage hydro uh, academics, researchers, and developers, and strongly, you know, and looking at NREL documents and around the costs, and they're much lower than lithium ion, and they're, you know, going to be a big part of our solution. And the, the ANU study from last year clearly showed that there's, for example, for the United States, 250 times as much pumped storage hydro potential locations as all storage demand. Under um, and yet you clearly in your study show a very low penetration of pumped hydro storage versus the much more expensive lithium ion. Um, you know, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So the, well, just the assumption that we didn't make was uh, that, like for the for the U.S., for example, we used existing pumped hydro storage plus those in the proposal stage or approval stage uh, to federal regulatory agency that approves this and so we were trying to be just what's what's there and what's being proposed and trying to be conservative not to just say okay this is going to double triple or quadruple and part of that was because um some of the earlier criticisms about you know expanding hydropower i just didn't want to give people ammunition (laughs) and but we i mean we assume this even in our 2015 paper or um, we even got criticized for too much hydro, even though not this type of hydro. And even in that case, people were misplacing that because we actually did not increase hydro at all in terms of metal water. We just increased the peak discharge rate of the hydro, which is when it's actually discharged. And so most, you know, half the people were just didn't even understand that we didn't increase the hydro at all, and we didn't increase pumped hydro yet. we were, people were criticizing the increase of hydro. And so I didn't want to give people more ammunition uh, and, it's not, and it's not necessary. Now, of course, this is again a case where, yeah, if we do have more pumped hydro, it makes it easier. And so it's very low cost. It's like on the order of uh, uh, one-tenth the cost. No, it's probably maybe one-eighth or seventh the cost of batteries right now. Um, but uh, yeah, we can, we can increase it. And that's just another thing that can be done to make the system even easier to implement um, if we need to. Yeah, same with vehicle to grid and other things. Yeah, right. yeah, and you also excluded you know nuclear from your planning, which I you know you and I completely agree on. Now, I mean, I, I talked to Jesse Jenkins of MIT. He did a, a very interesting study on the Southwest Energy Grid about allowing the existing nuclear. Um, 
pressurized water reactors, light pressurized light water pressurized water reactor fleet, to load, follow, and bid on day ahead um, markets. Um, and his modeling found that that would reduce curtailment of wind and solar. It would reduce coal and gas plant uh, hot reserves. So it would reduce CO two emissions, increase new, um, uh, wind and solar and um, increase the actual profits for the existing nuclear plants until they retire. But one of the interesting things to pull out of that was that all that does is make them profitable enough to mostly get to retirement. He was really clear that you know you have to provide a price on carbon and value, uh, economically value low carbon electricity in order for nuclear to have a place. I, I didn't say this to him, but you know you and I probably agree, well, any valuation of low carbon electricity is always going to favor the much cheaper wind and wind and solar than it's going to favor the much more expensive nuclear and still won't be able to compete yeah so well we don't uh, just to clarify for everybody we don't include nuclear in our proposals for the future and by 2050 which we're kind of well, by the way, our plans are to transition 80% by 2030 and 100% no later than 2050, and that's of everything, and to avoid 1.5 degrees global warming and to eliminate air pollution problems as soon as possible. Uh, so then if we look fast forward to 2050, by then existing nuclear will have been retired for the most part. And you know, we have never, even for existing nuclear, we do, never, we do not support nuclear plants that need subsidy. Today, yep. like we're in the United States, there are many nuclear plants, like three upstate New, New York nuclear plants that have been receiving subsidy. And Ohio think, just got another 1.1 billion for their nuclear plants. There's a persistent 1.6 billion federal subsidies for nuclear. Right. Well, so those plants, you know, those plants that can subsist on their own today. Okay, yeah, sure. Let them stay open until they retire naturally, or as long as they don't pose some other type of. Uh, imminent danger or even potential threat. Uh, but those plants for sure that are taking subsidy now, you know, you can take that money and replace them entirely with clean renewable energy and actually have more to boot. So we don't support that. And yeah. then we don't support any new nuclear uh, for multiple reasons. Um, not one, one is because it takes 10 to 19 years between planning and operation. So you know, if it's 15 years from today, today's 2020, a nuclear plant plan today won't be operational until 2035. We need 80% transition by 2030, so it's way too late. That yep. factor alone, the costs are four to five times per kilowatt hour that of new onshore wind and new utility solar. It's expensive. There's a meltdown risk. There's waste issues. There's uh, weapons proliferation issues. There is mining risk as well. So. We don't include it. Now, um, we evaluated <coughs> Jenkins' study in uh, our paper, that a recent study of theirs, that uh, they proposed that you need nuclear as, or nuclear in coal with carbon capture, or not necessarily coal, but some type of carbon capture uh, would reduce costs compared to an entirely renewable system. And we found, first of all, that their cost assumptions for nuclear and carbon capture were way underestimated. And that is a common thread I've noticed. Yeah, so it's about, for nuclear, the capital costs were about half the prevailing capital costs from uh, contemporary st studies of nuclear costs. 
And for carbon capture, they're about one-fourth to one-fifth that of actual existing carbon capture plant. Well, there's one in the United States, in Texas, for example, that uh, is on the order of, of $4,700 a kilowatt. I think it was. Uh, it was like a billion dollars for the entire carbon capture plant. And that was on the order of four times what they estimated was the cost of carbon capture. So they, you know, they assumed carbon capture and nuclear were low in their in their paper. And then their conclusion was, well, you need carbon capture and nuclear to keep the cost low. <laughs> so yeah, did you, um, did they also assume um, hot, overly high costs for renewables? Uh, there, yeah, there were, I mean, but it was, it was, it wasn't even, because their nuclear and carbon capture costs were so low, you know, you can't, really valid because they're doing an optimization study trying to find the lowest cost solution. Well, of course, if you assume the cost is low, you're, that's going to make it the lowest cost solution. So it doesn't and, this is the, and this is the inverse of what you and your team did. Um, no, we did not just do an optimization. We just didn't include nuclear. We weren't trying to find the lowest cost solution. We were just trying to see what the, was trying to find low cost solution and see what the cost actually could be with just wind, water, and solar, and we found the but, cost. Yeah, as I say, though, that to be clear, though, you kept making conservative, aka expensive option choices. Yeah, yeah, that's and true. And found they're much cheaper. Yeah, and we were even projecting forward to 2015, assuming the costs were still relatively high uh, for renewables. There. Yeah, I looked at an NREL study recently. It was very interesting. It said, you know, it, the current cost of pump storage hydro was still vastly cheaper than the projected 2025 cost of lithium ion batteries. Right. You know, it's just, you know, and so that's one of the things that I just wanted to keep drawing out for the podcast listeners is your study isn't optimistic. No, no, we're, we're, well, and I just want to, you know, give uh, credit here to Mark DeLucchi, who I've worked with together uh, for since our 2009 paper in Scientific American ongoing 100% renewables. And, you know, he's does a lot of the economic analysis uh, for this and he's very conservative and, uh, and in terms of, you know, he just wants to, you know, stick to the facts and try to be, and try to, you know, make sure everything is very clean and, and conservative in terms of his valuations. And so and there's, there are multiple eyes looking at this and, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to, we find that we don't have to you know, have like really extremely low cost for solar and wind for this to work really well. Yeah, and it's, this is a thread as well. I mean, it, you and I interacted a lot over my series on carbon engineering up in Squamish. And, you know, that was something I just kept doing is I just kept giving them the benefit of the doubt and kept giving, you know, very optimistic assertions for what they might possibly be capable of doing and, you know, not taking obvious efficiency hits against them. And their product and approach just doesn't result in, um, at the end, in things which are cheaper or lower CO2 than existing alternatives that we have today. Yeah, you're talking about carbon engineering there. And so... yeah, and so that's a, a direct air capture company, and they did an analysis of their own technology and says, well, this is the cost, and they claimed it was low, but they weren't comparing it with, well, what are the alternatives? And we did a separate study looking at direct air capture and carbon capture and sequestration and store or use, and found that it's actually much cheaper to take the same money 
that you'd use for direct air capture and spend it on wind and solar to not only reduce carbon from coal plants and gas plants that the wind and solar replace, but also reduce the air pollutants and the mining from those same plants. And so you get these additional benefits beyond just taking carbon out of the air because preventing carbon from getting in the air is the same as taking it out of the air. But when you replace coal or gas with wind and solar, you not only take carbon out of the air effectively, but you reduce you reduce the emissions of pollutants and you eliminate mining associated with coal. Yeah, I have to say the other thing that I that startled me and shouldn't have when I I've done a global assessment of the major carbon capture and sequestration approaches. Obviously, the deep dive on um, carbon engineering, which you know you wrote the forward for the report that we published on that. Um, thank you, by the way. I'll say yeah. that in person. The um, um, but the observation that I make is that ninety nine percent of carbon capture approaches around the world are used in conjunction with fossil fuel, either directly for enhanced oil recovery of petroleum and tapped out oil wells, where two to three times the CO2 ends up coming out as you put down, or in the case of the uh, North Sea natural gas facilities, um, where you've got um, an uneconomic amount of CO2 blended with the natural gas, which is extracted. It's separated off and then pumped back underground. But if you left it underground, you'd save 25 times the CO2. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous what this carbon that is captured right now that's sent to enhance oil recovery and the CO2 just binds with the oil. And so half of it gets is stuck in the oil and I'm sure a lot of it also leaks. And so by, yeah, by the time and the oil is eventually burned and the carbon goes back to the air that's in the oil. And so who knows if they're actually capturing anything in the end, because there's no proof. I haven't seen a single iota of proof that enhanced oil recovery actually captures a single iota of carbon. I mean, people claim it does, but. Yeah, the, um, the, the figures are that it, um, from what I've read about enhanced oil recovery using CO2, is that for every kilogram of CO2 you put underground, you get 0.25 to one kilograms of oil. This was a 2000, mid 2000 study. So it's probably improved since then. So when you burn 0.25 kilograms of oil, you get 0.8 kilograms of CO2. Um, and when you burn one kilogram of oil, you get closer to three kilograms of CO2. You know, and that's, that's why I say when you actually extract oil, you're getting two to three times the amount of CO2 you've been putting underground at yeah, best. That's important. Um, but then in addition to that, there's also some of that CO2 is leaking during the process. Yep. I'm sure. And it's not as bad as methanes or uh, right. HFCs, but still, it's, you know, still there. Right, right. Well, and... <laughs> And so, in fact, that we have then more oil to burn just means that oil becomes cheaper, and then more people burn it. So it's yeah, we're gonna we're gonna run into that induced demand problem as um, EVs penetrate more. We're already seeing two hundred and seventy thousand barrels fewer of oil per day just due to the electric buses in China. Right. Um, so that's a you know we're gonna start seeing that demand reduction um, starting to drive down the price of oil because demand goes down, and so the you know, we'll see induced demand, which is unfortunate and, you know, something I wrote about recently. Um, but so your study is excellent. It's, it's been evolving for years. Look, let's just take a, a, a retrospective, if you don't mind, we, like we've touched on a couple of things, but let's take the respect retrospective. It's 2020. You know, we're, we're in a new decade. We've got 10 years 
to make a difference. And we're really moving positively in a lot of different fronts there globally and in many different industries. Um, certainly the Democratic candidates are all on board and almost all on board with the urgency of the problem. Um, but casting your mind back to 2010 through 2020, you know, retrospectively, what do you think, uh, I have my opinion on what's fundamentally changed over the past decade, but what, what do you think empirically and from a global um, engineering and policy and science perspective has changed over the past decade? Well, the biggest advancements that have helped to actually realize a clean, renewable energy world are first the lower cost of wind and solar, um, then battery breakthroughs and well, electric cars, they're, I would say they're up there as well. I mean, Tesla you know, started before 2010 and they're around 2008 was their first roadster. And that was an important step because not because that first car was mass produced, but because it really brought attention to the, to the sexiness of electric cars and the, and also it just brought people's attention to, Oh yeah, this is puzzle. These car electric cars are different from the clunkers of the past. And so that was like the biggest sea change, I think. And I think it's a requirement to just briefly note that Mark bought one of those. Yeah, uh, I think it's also a requirement to note that we got to over an hour in a clean technica podcast before Tesla was mentioned for the first time. <laughs> yeah, but I, and I should say it's I still have that car and it's amazing. It is still an, an amazing car. Um, Do you have the Roadster? Yeah. Oh, sweet. <laughs> Are you going to get the new Roadster? Just asking. Um, no, I'm not going to get the new one, but I will get their new battery. <laughs> I did. I did purchase when I bought the original car. I purchased a second battery pack. Oh, I haven't collected on that yet. So, <laughs> so there, the new, the second battery pack is uh, supposed to be really good. Yep. Um, but yeah, so um, plummeting costs of renewables. Um, uh, plummeting costs and battery breakthroughs, electric cars, Tesla, those are kind of the ones you'd mentioned so far. Anything else? You know, the other thing is people are now talking more about electrifying uh, other sectors like buildings. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of laws that have been passed. That's, this is important. Um, so in the United States, despite the lack of federal action, there are now 11 states and territories that have passed 100% renewable electricity laws or, or executive orders. And that's, but that's only in the electric power sector and electricity is only about 20% of all end use energy. So we really need to go to the other sectors, but there are, there are also 61 countries that have passed uh, laws to go to 100% renewable electricity. And there are 145 or so uh, U.S. cities and about 250 worldwide cities that have passed laws to go to 100%. There are 220-some-odd international companies, including eight out of the 10 biggest companies in the world, have committed to 100% renewables. And so there's this whole massive movement. There are over 100 nonprofits that are committed to going to 100% renewable. And so this, this, the difference is that there's, yeah, there's now... Uh, basically what, we, what I call a hundred percent movement to transition. There are a lot of people on board uh, to do this and it's, it's, it has the popular support. There was one public opinion poll I saw 
a year and a half or two years ago that about 80% of people worldwide, they looked at 13 countries, wanted 100% renewable energy, whereas only about, you know, it was like 66% of people believed that climate change was in a a significant problem. So more people believe in renewable energy than believe in the problem of climate change, which is fine with me because you don't, who cares if you believe in the problem if you believe in the solution. And that's really what we're after is the solutions to climate change, air pollution, and energy security. Yeah, I, I see, a, um, you know, just to add a couple of things to your excellent list, I see the climate crisis and declarations of climate emergency as significant as well. We're well over a thousand jurisdictions, a lot of, um, a lot of cities um, in the United States and elsewhere, a lot of subnational jurisdictions in a few countries have formally declared a climate emergency. Um, you know, that was in keeping with the UNIPCC 1.5 degree thing. You know, and I, I I call that one out as well because, you know, Canada had a small part to play in COP21 in achieving consensus on that aspirational target of 1.5 degrees, which led to the UN IPCC 1.5 degree report, which really made it clear how much of a difference half a degree was going to make. So I, I look at that one as well and the attendant climate emergency one. I look at the Green New Deal, and you call out the Green New Deal very explicitly. You even labeled the draft of your paper the Green New Deal for 143 countries worldwide, something to that effect. You know, and you know, I've done gone deep and wide on the Green New Deal, and I think actually, I think Mark just decided he didn't have enough trolls bothering him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like just, just be, to be. Uh it out there and, and make controversy. <laughs> but but it, in fact, though, the Green New Deal really originates from our 2009 Scientific American paper. And the, the whole, the, the idea behind the Green New Deal is to go to 100% renewables by 2030. Originally, that was the original um, goal. Although some say their, their original goal is to go to 100 by 2020. And the Green New Deal has evolved from the Green Party to the Democratic Party, um, I should point out. And the people, the policymakers started in New York. Uh, but they, you know, we, in 20, 2009, we developed this uh, plan for the whole world to go to 100% renewables for all purposes. And our the goal was originally 2030. Uh, but when we looked at that in that paper, is it technically and economically possible to do this by 2030? And the answer was yes. But for social and political reasons, it's more likely that it will happen a couple de- decades later. The full transition will happen a couple de- decades later. So then we ultimately settled on about 80% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. Yep. But the Green New Deal policymakers latched on to the 2030 goal, which was actually the title of that paper. Uh and also the 100% renewables goal. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot's happened since then, but and that was kind of where they got those those two goals. Um, but and most people don't realize that's where it came from. Uh, but in fact, you know, we've been actively trying to um, look at the technical and economic feasibility of such transitions, not only in a worldwide scale since then, but we've looked at each of 50 states in the U.S. and now 143 countries. We've also looked at transitioning 53 towns and cities um, specifically around the world and are looking right now at dozens more. So that's, 
you know, it really gels what we're doing really gels with policymakers who are working on the specific Green New Deal plans. Well, and, you know, I, I, we're going to have to wrap up in a minute. Um, you know, as, as Zach has a, a prior commitment that's related to his daughter being in kindergarten and requiring an adult to show up to pick her up. Um, it also involves a Tesla, if you want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the Green New Deal is, is, is fascinating to me culturally and politically in the United States because it appears to be, there appear to be people in the United States who think that Roosevelt's New Deal which is very clearly patterned on after I've done, uh, you know, uh, an exegesis and, you know, almost a point by point comparison. Um, they they believe to seem to believe in the New Deal, which is so fundamental to Americans' ascendance globally as an economic and industrial power, was somehow problematic. Socialism, even communism, the the rhetoric around such an obviously potent historical example being leveraged with virtually the same points around energy, job security, health, innovation, uh, education, is really remarkable. Um, you know, and, you know, uh, I, I've spent a fair amount of time in that space. And so, you know, there's just so many flashpoints where, you know, a lot of the commenters on the American right have diverged from what I would consider to be observable reality. And that's yeah. unfortunate. Well, I should point out that this transition to renewables in the U.S. and around the world, it's not a partisan issue at all, even though, let's say we're calling it right now a Green New Deal. It actually has nothing to do with party. And in, on the ground, even Republicans embrace it, too. In fact, nine out of the 10 uh, states with the highest fraction of electricity from wind in the United States are all Republican red states. And because it's cheap, you know, wind, wind is cheap, solar is cheap. And so, you know, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, doesn't matter. You're going to invest in something that's cheaper and better for your kids and grandkids. And that's why you'll get this transition for electric cars, heat pumps, solar and wind. So, yeah, our plans will benefit everybody. In fact, you know, we, I have a co-founded the Solutions Project with Mark Ruffalo and uh, Josh Fox and Marco Kraples. And... The Solutions Project, its goal was originally to kind of educate the public and policymakers about the potential to go to 100% renewables. And, uh, but it, you know, the mantra was like 100% renewables for 100% of the people. So it's for everybody. And that's yep. what I believe in, that this is 100% renewable energy for 100% of the people. It's not just Democrats or Republicans. It's to benefit humankind. And... I almost take offense when you know people criticize me for you know supporting a Green New Deal socialist kind of you know adding all these nameplates and you know and they don't realize that everything is going to benefit everybody and it has nothing to, and it reduces costs for everybody creates jobs we find worldwide 28.5 million more long-term full-time jobs than lost three million more in the U.S. and so create jobs, reduce land use. That's another thing we look at. Yeah. Most people don't know that 1.3% of all U.S. land is used for the fossil fuel industry, including 1.7 million active oil and gas wells, 2.3 million inactive ones, millions of miles of pipeline, refineries, storage facilities, gas stations. Yeah. And our system in the U.S. would take up about – less than 0.9% of U.S. land. Uh, worldwide, about 0.65% U.S. land, and, and two-thirds of that is just space between wind turbines that can yeah. be 
farming. So it's just it's less land, more jobs, 60% lower energy costs, 90% lower social costs, more energy security. This is going to help all countries of the world, all people, regardless of Democrat or Republican or liberal or conservative. And, and lower pollution and lower climate change and all very doable. And Mark, um, on that note, in, in you know, respect for um, Zach's daughter, uh, I, I think that's a really good note to wrap up on. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been wonderful actually being able to speak with you directly as opposed yeah. to through email, which has been our traditional pattern. And I'm hoping to meet you in person someday soon. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike and Zach as well. Uh, really appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.